It's Romans 15, 7 to 12 for a sermon. I'm entitled, Jews and Gentiles, One in Christ. How long as I read? Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to, conform, uh, to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give you praise, praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come from the root of Jesse, he will arise to rule over the Gentiles, and in, his, and in him shall the Gentiles hope. You know, one of the books that I have at home in my library is The Coming Race War in America by Carl Rowan. Now, the book was written in 1996, a couple years after the O.J. Simpson trial, and it was intended as a wake-up call to America. Now, disagreeing with those who claim that uh, racism was decreasing and would pass away along with that World War II generation, Rowan wrote this, We're sliding headlong into a terrible racial conflict that will dwarf the Los Angeles riots, precisely because the baby boomers have not grown up devoted to racial equality the way we thought or hoped they would. In fact, white youngsters, the children of baby boomers, have swallowed more of the stereotypes that engender fear and hatred in recent years than at any time that I've known. Now, Carl Rowan was a political liberal so it's not surprising that he traced the problems in the black community back to white supremacy, uh, unjust legal systems, racist cops, and waning support for affirmative action. But even many who liked the book agreed that the title was sensationalistic. It was really designed as an eye grabber. I mean, Rowan didn't set forth any scenario on how a race war would unfold in America. And indeed, uh, in the next two decades, we saw lessening racial tensions in America, culminating with the election of President Barack Obama as the first American president. But then came the shooting in uh, the Trevon Martin case by George Zimmerman. You may recall that back in 2012. The case was reported as another example of a white man shooting an unarmed youth, despite the fact that Zimmerman was actually Hispanic. Many were outraged when he was acquitted of second-degree murder. Then in 2014, riots broke out in Ferguson, Missouri, after the death of Michael Brown at the hands of police officer Darren White, or Wilson. And of course, uh, after George Floyd died with his knee, or uh, with a uh, cop's knee on his back, uh, the riots broke out along with looting, not only in Minneapolis, but also across America. And I remember watching the video of the Minneapolis police headquarters going up in flames with a reporter telling us it was mostly peaceful protest. The idea of a coming race war no longer seems so far-fetched to me. Well, the truth is, though, that many countries have experienced ethnic tensions and tribal strife. Back in 1983 in Sri Lanka, they experienced what was called the Black July, where Sinhalese tribes uh, killed uh, and burned and looted some 2,000 Tamil uh, civilians. And in the process, they destroyed 8,000 homes and 5,000 shops. The economic cost at that time was $300 million. In Rwanda, in 1994, members of the Tutsi tribe killed 800,000 Hutus in a matter of 45 days. I remember reading of one account where there was a Hutu man who had lived next to uh, his Tutsi neighbor, 
And uh, the one man killed the other man's daughter. Of course, the examples could go on and on. You know, sin brings division and animosity not only between man and God, but also between man and man. And that was evident in Paul's day as well. I mean, the Persians looked down on the Arabs, the Greeks looked down on the barbarians, Romans looked down on everybody who wasn't a Roman. And then there was the religious divide, the one between Jews and Gentiles. Jews viewed Gentiles with disdain as those who were morally impure and steeped in idolatry and superstition. Gentiles viewed Jews as standoffish with a strange religion. I mean, how can you worship God if you don't have idols? Well, it was these two sides of humanity, this divide that God brought together in the church to make them one body in Christ. But that unity that God declared in principle had to be worked out in practice as believers learned how to live with one another even though they had different ethnic backgrounds and different religious practices. Now, as we've worked our way through this chapter of Romans, the one before and this one, we've seen that Paul's trying to heal a fissure that had developed in the church over the issue of whether you should eat or not eat certain meats, or drink wine or not drink wine, or keep certain holy days or not. Now, Paul was not concerned about whether you had these practices and kept them or not, but he was very concerned about the way the Christians were treating each other and viewing each other as a result of this division. So here in verses 7 to 12, Paul closes his teaching on these matters by urging believers, both Jews and Gentiles, to accept one another as God has accepted them in Christ. And while it's true that we don't have a whole lot of food issues that divide us in the modern church, there's a lot of other things that do divide us. And so this call to accept one another as we've been accepted by God in Christ is one that needs to be heard in every generation. So what we want to do is pray and then get into this text to see what applies to us. Our Father and God, you do pray for grace and mercy. Help us as we look at this to understand what your word is saying so that we might be pleasing to you. There's a lot of things that people can divide over, but there's one thing that should unite us, and that's our faith in Christ. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at these uh, verses, I think they break down into three parts. First of all, we see the command. The command, that's in verse 7. Next, we find the reasons for the command, and that's in verses 8 to 9a. And then finally, we find the biblical support for Paul's position, and that's found in 9b to 12. So the command. Now, Paul is a spokesman for Christ sets forth a command as a conclusion of his teaching dealing with these secondary issues that were dividing the church. What he's saying is, yes, there's, there's those who are strong faith Christians who understand that believers now in the new covenant no longer have to keep a kosher diet or uh, observe Jewish holidays, but others, weak faith Christians, mainly from a Jewish background, just didn't feel right about eating pork or drinking wine that might have been dedicated to pagan gods. Now, either way, Paul says it's fine. Have and hold your own convictions about these matters, but just make sure you don't look down on other people who see things differently. So for Paul, the bottom line uh, conclusion is found in verse 7, where he says this. He says, therefore, accept one another, uh, just as also Christ Jesus... Try again. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, the Greek word for accept here means more than just tolerate. It really means to welcome. Remember a scene strikes me in uh, the movie Anne of Green Gables, 1987. And it's a place where they're, they're at a private school for girls. 
And one of the girls is riding her bicycle and another girl is walking alongside, taunting her at the time. The snooty girl is Jen Pringle. And as she does, she takes her croquet mallet and she puts it in the front spokes of of the girl's bicycle and she flips over and she lands in her face. Then she gets up and she chases Jen Pringle down. And when she catches her, she throws her to the ground and she stuffs dirt in her mouth. She thought she deserved that. Well, this time the headmistress of the school comes by and she blows her horn and she, she yells at the girls and she says to them, she says, have you girls no propriety? Do you think this is a Turkish bazaar? And then she demands that they apologize to one another. And this is how the apology went. I'm quite prepared to forgive your lack of manners and I your rude comments. Now, Paul is not looking for the strong faith Christians in the church to say to those who are weak faith, well, we're quite prepared to put up with your unnecessary and burdensome Jewish practices, only to have them respond by saying, and we will look past your low-commitment, law-ignoring ways. He doesn't want them to hold their nose and merely tolerate one another. He wants them to fully embrace and welcome each other. Here's a go Tony Orlando sang a song about a man who was coming home from prison after being released. And he writes to his wife, wanting to know if she'll welcome him. The lyrics go like this. I'm coming home, I've done my time. And I have to know what is and isn't mine. If you received my letter telling you I'd soon be free, then you know just what to do if you still want me. Yes, if you still want me. Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. It's been three long years. Do you still want me? If I don't see a ribbon around the old oak tree, I'll stay on the bus, forget about us, and put the blame on me. If I don't see a ribbon around the old oak tree. And then the next verse, bus driver, please look for me, because I couldn't bear to see what I might see. I'm really still in prison, and my love, she holds the key. A simple yellow ribbon's what I need to set me free. And I wrote to her, please, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And then the last part says, now the whole bus is cheering, and I can't believe I see a hundred yellow ribbons on the old oak tree. You see, like the father of the prodigal son, when that young man finally came home after coming to his sentence, sen- uh, senses and repenting of his sins, the moment a person, the moment you turned from your sins to trust in Christ, God welcomed you back with a feast and a hundred yellow ribbons around the old oak tree. And if that's true, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and if while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son, if God accepts and welcomes us in Christ, we are supposed to welcome each other, whatever our backgrounds, whatever our personality quirks, and some of you have them. (laughs) Me too. Whatever our weaknesses and foibles. As Peter reminded us in his first epistle, he said, Since in obedience to the truth, you've purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but that which is imperishable, by the living and in the enduring word of God. In other words, we were born again, not only that we might be saved, but that we might love. Paul also reminded the Colossian Christians of the connection between our acceptance by God and our acceptance of each other. As the believers, we're renewed. He said, renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but we're all, Christ, but Christ is all and in all. 
So as those who've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Colossians 3, 11, 14. So Jew or Gentile, rich or free, whatever our background, whatever our skin color, in the church we are to accept one another and show unity, the unity of Christ's people to the glory of God, so that it's on display. Psalm 133, 1 says this, How pleasant, good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. So the command is to accept one another, just as Christ accepted us, to the glory of God. Now, not only because it's good and pleasant, but Paul has even a greater reason, and that brings us to our second point, the reason. This is in 8 to 9. There is a reason for the sun shining sky, and there's a reason that I'm feeling so high. Must be the season when the love light shines all around us. Just let your love flow like a mountain stream and let your love grow with the smallest of dreams and let your love show and you'll know what I mean. It's a season. That's one of those one-hit wonders by the Bellamy brothers. Well, Paul had his reason for urging Christians in the church in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles, to strive to maintain the unity of the church. His reason is grounded in the very purpose for which Jesus came. And that we see in the next verse, in verse 8. Listen to what he says. For I say that Christ has become the servant to the circumcision, meaning the Jewish people, on behalf of the truth of God to conform or confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Remember reading a commentator once who said that we shouldn't think of Jesus so much as a Jew as the universal man. <laughs> what? I mean, that's what Hitler and the Nazis tried to do, to try to de-Judaize Jesus as well and make him Aryan with blonde hair. Jesus was born a Jew. Jesus lived as a Jew. Jesus died as a Jew, and he was resurrected and will remain a Jew for all eternity. Jesus didn't come into the world as a Swede or a Russian or an Aztec or a Hottentot. He came as an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he came not only from their genes, but also to fulfill God's promises made to those patriarchs. Do you remember when the angel Gabriel announced to Zechariah that his elderly wife was going to have a baby who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, and they were to name him John? I mean, he didn't believe the message, and so the angel struck him dumb, and he was unable to speak for the entirety of her pregnancy. But when it came time for the baby, after the baby was born, and they were going to announce the name, Elizabeth said, well, we're going to call him John. And all the relatives said, you can't call him John. You don't have any relatives. Named. By the way, isn't it true that we all are experts on what people should name their kids? <laughs> and that's why my kids were smart enough not to tell us what they named them until afterwards. Right? But that was simple. I just renamed all the kids and gave them different nicknames. That's a grandparent's prerogative, I think. But anyways, you remember how it went. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, they, they went to him and they gave him a slate and they said, well, what's, what's the baby's name? And he wrote down, his name is John. And the moment he said that, all of a sudden his tongue was loose and he broke out into praise. And it says this, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has uh, come to his people to redeem them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the, our, the hands of those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, and listen to this, to remember the holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear. Jesus' coming as the Messiah was a fulfillment of promises that were made to Abraham centuries earlier. 
Paul writing about this in Galatians 4, 4 to 5 said this, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, that they might receive adoptions, or the adoption as sons. So Jesus' ministry, when you look through the Gospels, was focused almost exclusively on the people of Israel. He himself said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 28. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, right? And their people gathered from all over the empire to hear and are converted. But almost all those people were converted were Jewish people at the time. And just a few days after that, when Peter preached again to the Jews in Jerusalem, after he healed the lame man, he ended his sermon by saying this, For you first, Jewish people, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by, turning, by each of you turning away from your wicked ways. Acts 3, 26. So those Gentiles in the church needed to be reminded that they were, as Paul said, wild olive branches that were grafted into the Jewish root of that tree. They were the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's just a matter of sheer mercy that we as Gentiles are included in these blessings that come as a result of Jesus fulfilling a promise made to the ancestor of the Jews. Everywhere Paul reminds the Gentiles of just how amazing it was that God brings Gentiles into this Jewish covenant. In Ephesians 2, 1, uh, 11 to 17, it says this, Do not forget that you Gentiles, that's people like us, non-Jews, used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it only affected their body, not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship among God's people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in a world without God and without hope. But you now... You have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us, meaning the law. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles, creating in himself one new people out of the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought good news to the, of peace to those who are Gentiles who are far away, and peace to Jews who are near. There's a guy had a little ditty he wrote, said this, it said, How odd of God to choose the Jews. To which I added another line, But odder still if you think for a while that God should choose us dirty Gentiles. Gentiles like us need to remember that we're saved by a Jewish Messiah who is fulfilling his promises made to the patriarchs of Israel. But Paul wants the Jewish believers in the church to remember that it's always been part of God's plan to save the Gentiles and give them the blessings of Abraham so that they would glorify him for his mercy. Remember when Abraham was first called? God told him this. He said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, meaning all nations. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, not only to his physical descendants, but to all the families of the earth. And we're told in the book of Revelation that when the time comes, around the throne of the Lamb will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus was a servant 
to the Jews so that by fulfilling the covenant promises made to that nation, he might also become a blessing to the Gentiles. The prophet spoke of this. Isaiah 49, we read about the Messiah who's called the servant of the Lord. God speaking to him says this, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant. This is the father speaking to the son. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light unto the nation so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and, his holy, to, uh, and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation. By the way, this is one of the verses I would use if I were witnessing to a Jewish person. This one, the servant of the Lord, is the one who's abhorred by your nation. Who else would fit that bill more than Jesus? To the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now Paul could have gone to a number of places in the Old Testament to support the idea that God always intended to save the Gentiles. But he cites uh, four verses here uh, as evidence uh, taken from various places in the scripture. And we see them because they all connect together with the idea that the Gentiles are going to be joining the Jews in worshiping and praising God. So that brings us to our next point, though, the biblical support. And this is 9b to verse 12. Now you remember when we started early in the book of Romans, in Romans 1.16, Paul said this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. We just considered some of those passages that indicate that the gospel is indeed for the Jew first. But here in 9 to 12, Paul gives four citations to show that it is also for the Gentiles. So the first passage Paul cites from the Old Testament to support this is actually from 2 Samuel 2250. 2 Samuel 2250. In this chapter, David is praising God for all the victories that he was given over Gentile nations. He says this, You have saved me from contentions of my people. You have kept me as the head of nations. A people I do not know serve me. Foreigners pretend to obey me, and as soon as they hear they obey me, foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. Now, you would think after talking about his victory over Gentile nations, he'd talk about God stomp them all down. But then he goes on to say this, Therefore I will give praise to you, God, among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. The Gentiles will be surrounding me when I'm praising you. Now, notice David doesn't say that I'm going to praise you among the Jewish people, but the Gentile people. And that seems strange, but not so much if David is actually speaking, not ultimately about himself, but about the Messiah to come. That after the Messiah defeats his enemies, then the Gentiles also will praise him. The second citation comes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. That chapter is called The Song of Moses. It was written by Moses and given to the people of Israel to teach to their children. And what it does is it recounts the history of Israel up until that point, but then it projects into the future of what God's going to do with the nation in the years and centuries to come. In verse 21 of that, it talks about the sins that they commit and what God's going to do as a result. Listen to what it says. It says, They have made me jealous by what was not a God. They have provoked me, provoked me to anger by their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them with a foolish nation. You know what's going on here? It's because they worship foreign gods and not me. I'm going to take a foreign people who will worship me. Now, who do you suppose that is? It's us. That was predicted, the rejection of the Messiah 
and the gathering in of the Gentiles all the way back to the time of Moses. That people that God uses to make Israel jealous are us, the Gentiles, in the church. And then God speaks of the punishment that he will bring upon Israel for rejecting them. But afterwards, he will destroy Israel's enemies, the very nations that God uses to chastise his people. And as a result of this, Moses said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now notice that the Gentiles are going to join with Israel in praising God for saving Israel. So in the first citation, David rejoices among the Gentiles. Here the Gentiles are told to rejoice with his people. Now the next one comes from Psalm 117. By the way, this is the shortest psalm in the book of Psalms. There's only two verses to it. It says this, Praise the Lord, all you nations, meaning the Gentiles. Sing his praises, all you people, for his mercy towards us is great, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Now notice in this psalm, it's not Israel who's called on to praise the Lord. It's the Gentile nations for his mercy that he's shown to them. And the reason the Gentiles can praise him for the mercy is because they've received it in Christ. Now last passage, you can turn to this one if you have a Bible with you. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Why don't you see this in the text? I mean, a number of years ago I preached through Isaiah and uh, I think that's, I had more joy preaching through that than almost anything because it was really a challenge but uh, great blessing but it's interesting because when I preached through it what I found is that a lot of the commentators didn't know how to connect the chapters why does this chapter go after this one the reason that's significant is because here in chapter 10 it talks about the destruction of this Assyrian king and his army how they're going to be lopped down like trees and when it's all said and done you could have a little boy there with a slate counting all the soldiers that are left over one, two, three, five, that's it But notice, after these trees are cut down, what you find in the next chapter, in chapter uh, 11, it talks about, um, look at what it says in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from its root will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees, nor make a decision by what his ear hears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and on and on. Now it's interesting, and it talks about how he'll strike the earth with the rod of his uh, mouth, right? Now what's interesting about that is, okay, this Assyrian king and his army is destroyed, but the next thing that happens is the Messiah comes as a result. Now here's the problem. If it's just talking about the Assyrian king in Isaiah's day, Assyria was destroyed, but Babylon came after him. Babylon was destroyed and Persia came after him. Persia was destroyed and Greece came afterwards. Greece was destroyed and Rome came afterwards. Why would it go from an Assyrian king to the Messiah reigning? And the reason is, as I argued when we went through this, was it's not ultimately fulfilled in Sennacherib of that day. It's fulfilled in the Antichrist who's an Assyrian at the end. Now it's interesting because this is a passage that predicts that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatted uh, steer with, uh, um, together and a little boy will lead them and the cow will graze with a bear and their young will lie down, down together. It talks about how nobody will be harmed and, and all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God at that time. But then it says in verse 10, it says, Then on that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, He who stands as a signal flag for the peoples, meaning the Gentiles, and his resting place will be glorious. Now in Romans passage, Paul's quoting from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which reads this, There shall come from the root of Jesse, and he will arise to rule over the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles will hope. Do you get what Paul's arguing here? 
from this passage. He's saying that the purpose of Christ's coming was to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham, which will not only be that Israel will be blessed, but that the Gentiles will join in praising God for the great mercy extended to them through the preaching of the gospel. This promise finds its fulfillment when Jesus returns and the nations are converted, but even now it's going on in process by Gentiles being called together with Jewish people so that the two, the Jews and the Gentiles, offer up praise to God. And what Paul is saying to the Christians in Rome then is this, don't you Jews and Gentiles understand that there's unity in the church and that's part of Christ's great work in reconciling us not only to God but to each other? So don't mess up this beautiful picture by squabbling over secondary issues like whether you should eat certain foods or not or keep certain days or not. What really matters is loving God and loving each other. Love, love, love. That's what it's all about. For God loves us, we love each other. Father, mother, sister, brother. Everybody sing and shout. Because that really is what it's all about. It's about love, love, love. So let me ask you a question. Because, you know, we're doing this, all right, Doug, I'll, I'll try to keep in mind, uh, I'm not going to complain if someone won't eat pork. No, that's not the point of this. The point is simply this. We're supposed to live lives of self-sacrificing love so that the unity of the church can hold together no matter what's going on in the culture around us. Now, you tell me whether it's significant in our day with all the division and all the divisions that's being pushed that there would be one group of people that no matter what their background, no matter what their situation, they could love each other just the same. You know what they always say? If we don't hang together, we're going to hang separately. Because antagonism towards the church is growing in America. What I'm saying is look around the people here. Do you know them well enough that you could trust your life with them? That they wouldn't betray you? Remember what Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats? He says to the sheep, you know, I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you, was, you clothed me. I was, you brought me in. And they're all like, Lord, when, when did we ever do that? He said, I tell you, to the degree that you did that to the least of these, my disciples, you did it to me. It's really simple. One of the ways you show your love for God is by demonstrating your love for other Christians. Are you showing self-sacrificing love for people? And sometimes it's just as simple as letting comments go, people offend you, calling people to see how they're doing, praying for them, telling them you're praying for them, and showing that we really are one family, a family of God. If we do that, we're not going to have to worry about coming race wars or anything else. We're going to worry about the things that matter, which is getting the gospel out. So why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Our Father and God, you do pray for grace and mercy. Uh, like I said, on the surface, it doesn't appear that this has a whole lot to do with uh, Christians today, but it does, because we are called on to do whatever is necessary to preserve the unity of the faith in the church. And so, Father, we pray a blessing upon us. We pray that you'd help us uh, to be kind and gracious to each other, forgiving each other if we have any complaints, but then living in such a way that we show that uh, we are the people of God who are one. So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.